I'm Dr. Megan Corredo, and welcome to Real Stories, a podcast that features the narratives of trauma survivors, professionals, and community leaders. Real Stories provides a platform for guests with diverse life experiences to voice and honor their unique narratives. During today's episode, we will be speaking with Dr. Janelle Junkin. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be a part of this conversation. So can you tell us a little about who you are? Sure. Yeah. Um, where to start? So uh, so I'm a, I'm a board certified music therapist um, and uh, let's see. Well, let me ask you, um, you want personal, professional, a combination of both? So it's actually up to you. So whatever you feel comfortable sharing as far as um, your identity or different qualities um, that that are a part of your personality and who you are, you can feel free to share personal, professional, or a combination of both. Okay, great. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a combination. Uh, so I'm going to backtrack and actually I'm going to introduce myself on the more personal side. So um I, I, in this day and age, I think it's important and necessary to say that I am a white cisgendered woman, um, and uh, and personality wise, I, um, I I think I am hilarious, <laughs> um, and uh, and I'm a nerd, and I I love to read and explore and discover. Um, I love traveling, so the having to to not travel right now is a big uh, bummer. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, I have a, a great group of friends who um, I just adore and love, and they're uh, just fabulous and a good part of my life. Um, and I'm a musician, so I'm I'm classically trained on the flute, um, and I started playing when I was. 12. 12. No, I started playing when I was nine. I started performing when I was 12. Wow. That was early. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and then I went into music therapy because my uh, band director in high school, I, I had known that I'd wanted to do something with music and I enjoyed psychology. I'd taken a psych course, an intro to psych course in, in high school. Um, but I really wanted to do music and I thought I really, I don't love teaching and I do not want to be a music teacher. I'm also not a morning person at all. (laughs) (laughs) So having any type of teaching schedule, like, uh, makes me cry when I, uh, my sister teaches and I'm like, no, (laughs) I don't know how they do it. I could not do it. I could not do it. I, when people are like, oh, should we do an early morning meeting? And I'm like, sure. Nine. Um, yeah. And, and so I, yes, I knew I didn't want to teach and I, um, I didn't love performing and I was being groomed to be a performer. I was actually, to be honest, I was taking lessons from, uh, for people in the flute world. If you have any of, I'm doubtful there's very few of us, (laughs) but, um, James Galway is like one of the most famous flautists. Uh, he's from Ireland and, uh, his student was my teacher. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I was being groomed to perform and I, I didn't love that cause that's, it's just, you're isolated from people. You're just kind of practicing all the time. Oh, wow. And, um, 
so my band director said, you know, there's this thing called music therapy. You should check it out. And I'm fortunate because it turns out that in the city that I lived in, there were actually two music therapists who were um, practicing. And uh, so my senior project in high school was I got to shadow them for six months and, and watch what they did. And I got to make a little video about it. And I thought, yep, this is the profession for me. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so I'm a music therapist and so I, I play the flute, but I, to be honest, I don't use the flute in my therapy, uh, because yeah, it's, uh, I tried, but it's such a personal instrument for me that I don't enjoy using it in a therapeutic context for other people. Mm, that makes um, sense. Yeah. So I really stick to piano, guitar, and, and other wind instruments like the recorder and things, uh, different percussion instruments and voice. Uh, you know, that's what I use in, in my music therapy life, I, but I don't use my flute. Okay. Um, yeah. And I discovered pretty early on that when I started practicing music therapy, that music became about my clients. Uh, so mm-hmm. I lost a little bit of my personal connection to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why I, I kept the flute, uh, mm. separate. Okay. So you could kind of have your own, um, artistic expressive medium that wasn't necessarily yeah. tied to work. Yep. Yep. For okay. sure. Yep. Uh, and then, um, so I was doing that and then, uh, and after I had done my master's, so I have my master's in creative arts therapy. Um, so I actually had a little bit of an introduction to art and dance movement therapy, which was fantastic. I loved understanding how all three modalities uh, were related and not related and how we work together. And um, and so I had gone full-time into uh, outpatient therapy in North Philly and really just uh, I have a hard time with uh, seeing systems that don't work well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> And so I, I found nice it. Way to say that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I found it difficult to work in a high crisis area uh, with children and adults, or no, I'm sorry, with children and families, and um, and to see that a lot of the a lot of the diagnoses that were being given also had some environmental and cultural contexts that were, mm-hmm. I thought were, felt were being ignored. Mm-hmm. Um, and it felt disingenuous to have people come into my office to do, work on some coping skills. And then, uh, you know, not, and I of course don't live in those neighborhoods. And so I didn't have a, a really good contextual understanding of, uh, uh, of what they were coming from and the experiences that they were having. Um, and so I could, ex- I could obviously try and understand as much as I could, uh, through questions and through listening, um, and through being present. Um, but it, it just felt, uh, strange to me to say, well, you know, come in for this one hour a week, feel safe, go through all these things and, but good luck back out there. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, uh, it just ended up not being for me in the end. Um, and uh, and then I kind of felt like, oh man, I, I what am I doing then <laughs> with myself? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went from that to working with uh, early intervention childhood development. Uh, so working with kids um, who were on uh, the autism spectrum, uh, who were medically fragile, um, some were end of life care uh, as well, 
And, uh, and I actually really enjoyed that, to be honest, to, mm-hmm. to discover how to use how for me, how to use music uh, without verbal processing. Uh, mm-hmm. So completely different from what I had been doing prior. Um, so kids who, who didn't have language. Um, and so it was all about the sounds and the nonverbal interactions and how to uh, learn how to read that um, so that I could uh, respond appropriately and, and correctly for what they needed. So that I, I enjoyed that. I did that for about four or five years, I think. It sounds like you've worked with a lot of different populations. Yeah, I have. This is true. Um, I have actually. Uh, so when I started in, so my first experience actually with music therapy in my home uh, city in Connecticut, I um, I worked with uh, kids who uh, had, were on the autism spectrum and who uh, had cerebral palsy um, or who had uh, Down syndrome. And I also worked uh, with medically fragile uh, kids, actually, to be honest, who lived in a group home. Um, And uh, so that was my first experience into music therapy. And then after I graduated with my bachelor's and had done my my internship hours and became certified, I actually worked with the elderly. Um, and so I did in-home visits, uh, with elderly. And at the same time, I was also working for a community arts organization, uh, here in Philadelphia and, um, working, uh, with musicians, um, Mm. primarily to, uh, to work in, in underserved communities and, and provide access to, to the arts. Um, and and then when I did my master's, I was working with children and families in kind of like crisis uh, situations uh, in North Philadelphia. And then, right, I did a few years with, uh, again, the special needs kids um, who are medically fragile in, mm-hmm. and then um, I've worked, I spent a couple of months, actually, I'd, I'd been invited to go to Zambia in Lusaka, which is the capital, um, to uh, actually stay at a village uh, for an orphanage of for kids whose parents had died from the AIDS epidemic. Oh wow! Um, yeah, and so I actually lived in the uh, I lived on the village. I lived in the village with them, um, and I um, got to go into the schools and, and work with them. And I got to go into their homes, and they had um, house mothers, uh, so people who were helping to take care of them. And, uh, and to help support them. Uh, so I really enjoyed that. And then, um, back in the States, I, oh, and then I switched from that into doing work with, uh, refugees and survivors of torture, uh, who were placed here in Philadelphia and had done that for, uh, maybe three, about three years. Um, yeah. You have such an extensive resume. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit all over it can be yeah but it's i it's good i like it i i'm i'm realized for me personally i'm um i'm a builder i'm not a maintainer and so i very much value going in and building structures and foundations getting things set up just transferring skills like skill sharing and task shifting mm-hmm. and then uh and then stepping away and, and whatever becomes of it is what becomes of it. Uh, mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So that, I think that's also part of why I have done such a different variety of things uh, mm. because I, I enjoy that kind of moving around and, and exploring different uh, ideas and populations and figuring out how to work and, and what does that mean for me and for them, whoever I'm working mm. with. Mm-hmm. So we know that every individual, every community, every system has a story and every story includes both adversity and strength. Can you talk to us about some of the adversities that you faced? You know, so this is interesting. I, I actually, uh, I have been, uh, I'm, 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 I'm swinging on a little bit of a tangent, but I promise this is all related. I, I have been, uh, I've, I've been doing some work for the last five years with this organization called Mind Leaps, um, which is a dance company that teaches cognitive and social emotional skills through dance. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do it with kids who live on the street uh, who are one generation removed from genocide in Rwanda, um, kids in Guinea who are survivors of Ebola. Um, they work in refugee camps in Uganda and Kenya and Rwanda, and then are working with um, groups of uh, kids in uh, North Macedonia. And so I've been teaching. Uh, so when the pandemic hit, they had to obviously switch what they were doing and they created instead this virtual academy, uh, yeah, which is quite interesting. So you teach via WhatsApp, which is amazing because that's what oh, they wow. have access to. Yeah, it's it's quite fantastic. Um, so I've been doing this five-week curriculum on uh, child development, trauma, and some introduction to CBT skills, uh, cognitive behavior therapy skills with these kids in Uganda, Guinea, and Rwanda. And by kids, I'm, I think the youngest is 15 and the oldest might be 21 or 22. Okay. Um, so young, young adults, I should say, I should, I should stop saying kids. <laughs> They're young adults. Um, and, uh, and so I, so what I was thinking of is, you know, the, one of the conversations that we continuously have in, in, with the different groups is, um, you know, the importance of the early childhood development and, and kind of what happens there and, and how that can shape, uh, parts of who we become. And although there are opportunities for, for kind of relearning and reparenting in ways and for healing, um, you know, those initially was really important. So I, I was thinking, you know, for me, I had, uh, so when I was, my dad was in the military and, um, and so we, I spent the first seven years of my life traveling, uh, around the country. And I was actually also born, uh, in Germany on a military base. Mm. And, um, and so when I think I was about seven, uh, my dad just kind of decided, I'm sure there was a lot of stuff that went on that he's just didn't want to be a dad anymore, uh, or a husband for that matter. And, um, and so, uh, and my mom had a high school education, um, and she was a housewife. And so my dad, uh, so they, they ended up separating and divorcing and my mom and my brother and my sister and I ended up moving in with my grandparents, uh, my mom's parents. Um, and, and who also, I mean, interestingly, my grandfather had my grandparents from my mom's side are actually from, uh, like West Virginia, Kentucky coal mining, uh, region. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my grandfather, I believe he might he might've had a high school education and 
I can't remember if my grandmother did as well. I, I have this vague memory that I think she stopped education like around 13 or 14, but you know, I could be wrong around that. Mm-hmm. Um, so all blue collar workers, uh, worked in factories. Um, and then my mom, uh, uh, also worked in, in like a, was a deli slicer at the, um, in the local grocery store. Uh, so anyways, so we were six people living in this, uh, house (laughs) together and, uh, just a lot of kind of chaos, uh, and, um, and, and I, um, I'm really, I mean, in, in the midst of all this, I will say I was very fortunate that I had grandparents who could take us in and who were loving and took care of us, Mm -hmm. um, and worked together. And, uh, but that 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 rejection by my dad at such a young age, and then he was very inconsistent. So you know, say, "Oh, I'm coming to visit you," and then just not show up, and that type mm-hmm. of thing. So that mm-hmm. that was constant. Um, and so for me, I internalized that very early on. That like, oh, you can't trust people. They tell you all types of things, but they don't show up, <laughs> and mm-hmm. you know, or or thinking that in some ways I'm, I'm disposable, right? That uh, I'm not. There's not I'm, whatever something about me doesn't mean that someone's going to stick for the long term. Um, mm. So those were like the internal messages that I took from that, um, and it's taken me many years to to kind of unravel that and pull that apart and say like actually no those you know those things weren't true. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that really did um, you know kind of um, go through and, 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 and in some ways very much shaped like who I became and, and the things that I get involved in. And, and in some ways, like I, uh, you know, when I work with certain, uh, certain people interact with them, um, and, uh, and they might say, well, you don't understand what it's like. And, and I'm like, well, actually, I know what it's like for six people to have $20 for a week. And you don't mm. know, actually, I do know what that is, you know? Mm. And I know, actually, I, I'm a welfare kid. I know what that is too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, I, I'm using those as adversity, but also um, I don't necessarily mean that in a, in a negative sense rather than, you know, just kind of now I see them very much as learning opportunities. Um, uh, but I would say probably at that, that time, I was like, oh man, you know, how are we going to you know, having worries as a kid of like, are we going to be able to have enough food or, you know, mm-hmm. our needs going to be met and that type of thing. Yeah. I, I mean, th- that's probably the one that's the most constant for me because even as I have worked towards my own healing and things like that, uh, you know, that's, that's the, the thing that creeps back up on me, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it me every once in a while. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to um, fabricate anything that's adversity. So I've had my share of, uh, you know, of setbacks, of of hurdles that I've had to overcome, um, you know, of, uh, you know, actually my biggest disappointment was my doctoral uh, studies. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I had actually... Um, I, I won't name the schools or anything like that, but uh, I had actually uh, applied and, and gotten into a, a program in uh, at a university in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, that I loved. 
<laughs> and I had done two years in the program uh, and was heading towards my um, uh, what? Where do you go from student to candidate? Um, comps, my comp, my comps. And, uh, and the university went through, I, I'm not totally sure what happened, uh, but they did this huge upset and they ended up firing all of our faculty, our, our president, uh, all of our dissertation chairs. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it was wild. And then they were trying to force us to sign papers saying that we were going to take a different course of study. And, um, it, it was just, it was a nightmare. And, uh, but it was a program that I was so interested in. I was loving what I was learning and the people who I was learning with and from. And uh, and I I was like talking to a, a, a friend of mine and said, you know, I, I have this, I have a colleague who works at uh, this other university and why don't you call her and tell, just tell her what's going on and see what she says. And And I'll be honest, I really thought she would say to me, you know, put on your big girl panties, finish this program. You have like, I had a year and a half left. Oh, you were almost done. Yeah, yeah. And and she didn't say that. She said, that sounds like a mess and you need to get out of that university. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was just so devastated because it was the program I wanted. Um, it was the location I wanted. It was the faculty I wanted. It was the the people I was learning with. Um. And so I ended up, I ended up transferring, shockingly enough, uh, to a different university and, um, and it was a fine learning experience. I wasn't a great fit. I don't think, um, I had just a different value set and interest. Um, and I, you know, I think the university tried to accommodate that as best that they could. Um, but yeah, I definitely walked away with the doctorate that I was not intending to get, uh, Mm -hmm. first place. So, yeah. So that was um, interesting. So I think like where I'm, maybe where I'm going to end up, I've circled, but I think with adversity, I have a hard time uh, focusing on that because I'm definitely, I'm, I'm a problem solver. Um, mm-hmm. And so I tend to see, oh, I'm like, oh, no, this is going to be a challenge or um, this is going to be very difficult and I don't, I don't like it. Sometimes you know, I will have that um, somatic response to, or like I, I'm, I'll get sick from it. But I'm going to do what has to be done in order to move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's let's actually segue um, into our next question. So can can you share a few important positive moments or turning points in your story? Yes. Um. So I'll, I'll start back with my dad. So two things that 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 come to mind about that. Uh, one of them was uh, my grandfather, who is just like the sweetest, funniest, craziest ninety-year-old man. <laughs> <laughs> and and to be honest, I, I call him uh, either granddad or granddaddy. So which is funny because I would never use that with my my actual dad. Um, and so my my granddad really, uh, you know, he just like accepted me for who I was. Like I never felt like I had to be somebody that I wasn't mm-hmm. around him. Um, and I don't think I, it's definitely not until like the last probably 10, 12 years that I really was like, oh man, what a gift that was 
uh, mm-hmm. and continues to be for me. And then the other one that comes to mind is um, uh, my mom had some some best friends uh, in the area and uh, who they were married and they had, uh, I think maybe four, I think five kids, five kids. And so he had his own family. But when, when we first moved back, he would, uh, after he would get out of work, he would come to our house first and he would play with us. And, and he did that because, uh, he believed that it was important that children had a father to interact with. Mm. Uh, right. And just like the selfishness, uh, selflessness of that, uh, act. Um, mm. and yeah, and just, and we're really good friends actually with the, with their kids and stuff like that. Cause we've grown up together, but so that, that, those are the two that come to mind. Um, and again, I would say the truth is I don't know if I really understood or put it all together in the moments as a, as a young person about like what that meant to me. But now as an adult, I'm like, oh man, I think those two, uh, uh, men, my grandfather and this other man, you know, giving selflessly and accepting me and my siblings for who we are, um, really helped in the healing process, even though we weren't aware of it in the moment, mm-hmm. and again, mm-hmm. who we became. Um, and some other really positive moments, um, you know, I would say uh, has been, <laughs> I, I tend to be a risk taker, especially when it comes to like my professional life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'll just try things and, we'll, you know, we'll just see what happens. And so I, I'll often just reach out to people and say like, hey, I, I want to do this, or I think this is uh, something that's worthwhile. And, and I would say more, more often than not, it's rare for me to get the turn down on something like that. Um, and so, uh, you know, experiencing that, having that experience at, at, at the outpatient center really moved me more towards how do we become more, uh, involved in like social justice and in, in really seeking equity for people. Mm. Um, and then, uh, in 2009, I actually was part of a team who traveled to Colombia. And so there were 12 of us, four Canadians, four Americans and four Colombians. And I spent three weeks traveling, uh, with them and we were hearing stories and witnessing, uh, the stories of survivors of the armed conflict in Colombia and really learning about how, uh, U.S. and Canadian policies politically um, directly contributed to the unrest in 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 this country and in Colombia, mm-hmm. and and so for the first time I did have a, a it's not the first time but for it was this was one of the second times that I had really had a solid understanding um, and firsthand encounter with people. Um, to hear about like the fact that the way that I live my life is made possible because other people were being oppressed for it. Mm. And and, yeah, and really just kind of sitting with that. And, and, and what we ended up doing is uh, we were able to work with um, an advocacy group and, and the four of us who traveled from the U S were actually able to go to Congress and speak with different congressmen about what we had witnessed. And, um, you know, I, I don't think any policies changed, but at least we made our voices heard and said, mm-hmm. this has to change. This can't continue. Um, and actually now that I'm thinking about that, the first time that I really, uh, really, really became aware of that was I was 16 and, uh, I'm actually a, a Hugh Bryan youth foundation scholar. Okay. 
And uh, so when I was 15, I wrote an essay uh, around social justice and I submitted it and I won for my city. Um, At 15? Yeah. <laughs> wow. You, so you were an activist. <laughs> yeah. Even in the midst of the adversity that you were experiencing in at home. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. Because uh, yes. That's amazing. My whole thing has always been how do I, I had go through these things and, you know, how do I, how do we help other people either go through their own healing or maybe um, avoid the same type of things that I have gone through. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, Right. So I won for my city and then uh, I went to the state. And so I was uh, spent uh, time, um, uh, like I think it was an entire weekend. Um, and so met some really great people. And then I went international that summer. Um, and so I was part of a team of about, I think it was about 25 of us. Um, and so the youngest was 16, which was me. And the oldest was 22 or 23, I think. Um, and we traveled to Malaysia, Indonesia, China, and Hong Kong. And uh, really, we actually, um, we went to different uh, factories and uh, undertone being sweatshops. Um, and we actually got the opportunity to tour them. Um, we weren't allowed to speak to workers, but we definitely had the opportunity to speak to the executives. And mm. and that I, that was the most striking was uh well I'll I'll give the and you can decide if you want to edit this out was actually the Nike factory in China mm-hmm. and um the conditions in the factory were just abysmal and uh poor p- ventilation and I I couldn't hardly breathe and and I was only in there mm-hmm. for like 10 minutes maybe Wow. And then to go and there, you know, it was fans, so it was an AC, it was just, it was not great. And, uh, and then to, to literally go from that tour to the executive office where it was air conditioned and beautiful and it was all white executives. Mm. Um, and they all said to us when we questioned what was happening, they said, well, they have a better life here than they would if they didn't work for us. Mm. And I thought, oh, okay, I got it. The United States, we're not good. Mm. <laughs> we we do we do some not good things in the name of uh, economics and policies and things, and people are harmed mm. um, because we have specific ways of life. And so that, um. Yeah, so that that was the so that was I was 16 when I had that experience and then I found out about the music therapy thing and so you know that just kind of moved me forward but right how do I um yeah how do I participate in uh providing opportunities for healing for people and um yeah, advocating and being a voice against, uh, you know, oppression and um, and harm. Right. And then, mm-hmm. so, and in, in listening to like your professional story and some of the um, childhood experiences um, that you had, it sounds like uh, it. It sounds like there's a theme of kind of the adversity always being present and the the adversity being very much there, but also like identifying ways for transformation and empowerment and advocacy, even in the midst of all the things that you experienced and the things that you witnessed others experience. 
Yes, always. Yes, that is true. And wow, I'm so glad you framed it like that. That's so <laughs> useful and helpful. Yes, that's true. I, I think adver- ad- adversity is, and I, I don't mean that this isn't a um, a complaint or a uh, it's not meant to be a um, a downer in any way, shape, or form. Adversity is present, right? It is ever present. And, and in some ways, I think it's the companion that goes with transformation. Mm. Um, and so, you know, now that we're talking about this in the way that you framed it, I'm thinking, right, I, I think instead of viewing adversity as um, a stopping point, uh, I, I do. I tend to view adversity as uh, I have a, a point where maybe I need to grieve and then I need to look for what what needs to change to to continue moving forward. Mm. Um, and I would say that is both a that's a personal theme that has I have translated into my professional life. And even when I did my uh, my dissertation, I ended up it was um, I was uh, looking at the role of music um, in conflict transformation, mm. and. Um, I had originally uh, been slated to actually go to to Nazareth um, in uh, in Israel uh, because there's a, an orchestra called Polyphony Youth Orchestra bringing together Israeli and Arab youth um, through music, mm-hmm. and I was just so fascinated by uh, by that and what changes um, that the, so they were saying you know there's this it's enough to share a music stand and I thought. Oh, I'm a music therapist. And so I think that's a part of it. And I think the other part is how do we start to talk about it? Mm. And um, just as I was, so about a, about a year out from when I was supposed to leave uh, to, to go over, I um, they, there was rockets being lobbed into the area I was supposed to live in. So they said, we're sorry, you're a liability. We can't let you come. And, and so I was like, oh man, what am I going to do? And that was the time that uh, the Black Lives Matter movement was really taking off uh, for the first time uh, and in a very public way, mm-hmm. um, in a very mainstream way here in the U.S., uh, so about 20, like late 2015. And uh, I, I live in an, a section of Philadelphia, um, which is a primarily – I live with a, in an area that's uh, primarily African-American, Latino uh, uh, were my neighbors, and so I'll say this: my neighbors would say, oh, "Well, you live in a black and brown neighborhood," and that's very true. And I was thinking about the messages that the young men and women in my neighborhood were receiving about who they are and the value that they have in our society. Mm-hmm. And um, I had a great advisor uh, uh, at my university, and he, and she said to me, "Why don't you start your own program, mm-hmm. your own music program?" And and so I did. Um, so I founded Orchestral Dialogues, um, Accepting Self, Accepting Others, um, specifically to address uh, what I called an armed racial conflict, um, and specifically with the intent of um, of bringing together children uh, of different backgrounds, um, socioeconomically, racially, ethnically, uh, to have space to, so they got, uh, we rehearsed um, twice a month and uh, at that time, and they got private music lessons. And then once a month, I brought in um, a dialogue 
transformative dialogue specialist. Um, and they, we then talked about what the things that they were learning about in music. So, um, talking about like the metaphors of, uh, of rests and of harmony versus dissonance versus mm. unison. Um, and, uh, and so it was just like this really fantastic learning experience. And, so in the first year we had 13 kids and I would say the bulk of them had never played an instrument before or read music. And man, in five months, these kids learned how to play their instruments. They were reading music, they were playing together and they were learning, uh, you know, things about like identity development. Um, and so it was just this, uh, huge thing. And, and what's interesting is my, when I first, uh, submitted or when I first defended my uh, initial part of my my dissertation stuff, I had, like I said, I had named the the U.S. conflict as an armed conflict, and um, my committee said, "Oh no, we we don't we think you should remove that language." And I said, "Okay." And then I defended my dissertation the weekend, uh, the Monday after the um, the 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 thing in in Charlotte uh, in Charlottesville. Um, that had happened. And so my committee was like, you need to put that language back in there. Mm. <laughs> and so I did. Um, but right. So I'm again, and I, so I think like, right. I'm, I'm always about how do you transform adversity? And I think the other thing that I have learned, and it's been a hard lesson for me to learn is sometimes transforming adversity means you have to stop being in relationship with some people. Mm. And, and that, that's, that's a difficult lesson to yeah, learn, I think. It uh, is. Like, right. And so it's like, I can, I can forgive people and I can harbor no ill will towards them. I can have regrets around it. I can wish things were different and I can know that I cannot be in relationship with certain people anymore. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking about the, the program that you created to bring um, different people in the community together and have them create music and also engage in dialogue. And, um, it sounds like it sounds like the conflict was very present in the room, and um, that was maybe part of the goal was to get people together um, from opposing viewpoints in the same space. But then it also sounds like um, the connection was also very present in the room, and the opportunities for growth and healing were there too. Um, that's just really a unique a unique thing uh, to almost say. You know what? We're gonna welcome conflict here in the space, in this room, we're going to allow it and we're going to work through it together. Yes. I, I mean, I, I am not typically a conflict avoidant person. And, um, and so I, I, because of that, I tend to think that some of the best ways to do it is to, to allow the conflict to be present. Again, I'm, I'm always thinking about uh, not harming Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, it's, it was the, the idea that we could be in disagreement we could be in conflict and we could still be together. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, I, I, and then the value of, um, so the kids also, we did a lot of self-reflection, uh, right. And so, uh, asking them to, to think about things, to draw things, to share, uh, and, and what was really interesting that first year, especially, uh, one of the things that was completely unexpected is I had 
a number of the parents actually participated in the dialogue workshops. Oh, wow. <laughs> which was not uh, an intent of the program at all. Uh, and, uh, you know, parents would wait for their kids. And so they'd say, well, can, can we join you? And I, you know, I was like, oh, I don't, yeah, that's fine. I don't care. I welcome that. And mm -hmm. so I think that also allowed uh, other areas of transformation of, of kids being able to hear things that their parents were expressing and, and parents maybe hearing things differently about what their kids were talking about, their own experiences. Um, and yeah, so it the relationship was key, mm -hmm. right? And so building the trust, it, it had to happen on multiple levels. I had to build the trust with my staff. I had to build the trust with the kids. There had to be trust built with the parents. And and we had a we have a local uh, partner school, and and so we needed to build the trust with the the school as well. Um, and so like the uh, the whole thing it was relational, right? We I don't think we would have had the success if there wasn't the intent behind the relationship building. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so like many times it was just sent just sitting and talking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> listening in order to to move things forward yeah to be able to have that trust and that safety first for sure yeah yeah it had that had to be the underlying uh foundation mm -hmm. so what do you see for yourself moving forward uh, right now i'm 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 dipping my toe into the academic world okay <laughs> um and uh what i actually really love my my favorite thing to do uh, two things. Um, uh, you know, I got my doctorate because for two reasons, one, it was practical, um, because I do, I, I do work a lot in international, uh, 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 environments or I'm traveling internationally and, and I'm, I'm, I'm a woman and, mm -hmm. uh, and I knew, and I was, had opportunities to sit at tables and have conversation. And I, it dawned on me very quickly that, um, the letters behind my name mattered. Yeah. And so it was actually more practical getting my doctorate than it was anything else. Okay. I knew that I needed my doctorate in order to be taken seriously in certain areas that I work in. Um, I really discovered uh, through my doctoral program, I, I love doing research and I love like the monitoring and evaluation process. Mm. And I'm very much interested in how do, how do community organizations and how do communities gain access, equal access to research and to monitoring and evaluation so that it's not held by elites or academics, but rather it's how do how do communities begin to actively engage with and, and, and lead mm -hmm. the, you know, those things. And so that's, that's actually where I'm, I'm very interested. I, I don't have a fully formed <laughs> thought around that, but that, that has held a lot of interest for me. Mm. Um, and our dreams, and our dreams, future ambitions do not ha need to be fully formed either. Right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, and so I've done participatory action research, you know, I, so I'll share this very quickly because this is one of the things that I'm, I'm super proud of. Um, I, when I was doing uh, my initial research with Mind Leaps in Rwanda, I had spent some time uh, in, in, uh, in Rwanda and um, 
And I was working with the the street kids and we were wanting to understand like the impact of this dance program. And like here are kids who who literally live and sleep on the streets and they would walk, some of them would walk for hours to come to this two-hour dance class. And, mm. and of course, while they're walking and they're dancing, they're not able to work for or forage for food, right? Mm. And so I thought, well, why are they coming here? You know, what is the benefit of this? <clears throat> and so we we did a, a research study and um, and then one of the people we were working with said, you know, we really need to make sure that the kids who are coming are actually representative of the the kids in this area who live on the street. And so we thought, well, how in the world are we going to gather that information? And uh, because they're not going to talk to me. Uh, first of all, I'm a white woman. And second of all, I don't speak Kinyawanda. Mm. And, um, and so I said, well, can you identify like, top four kids in the the program, kids who have some basic literacy, um, who can, who can read and write in Kinyuanda. And, and so they did. And so I, I flew back over there and I sat with them and I said, this is the information I need to gather. And here are the questions that I've come up with. And they said, you can't ask the kids this. And I said, great, here's the information that I need to get. How are we going to get it? And they mm -hmm. actually helped me design the tool and then uh, we spent time practicing how to use it. And then um, essentially, then we decided that we were going to work together. They were going to be researchers with me. Mm. And um, so every day I would give them the, the, the surveys that needed to be completed and money for transportation. And we, we always wanted to... Um, because food was very precious on the street, um, I worked with a local merchant to got uh, food to give to anybody who was willing to give us even partial answers for the surveys. We 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 thanked them with uh, food, mm. and then we worked with a local restaurant, and I was able to pay uh, for meals for all of the boys for I think ten days. Mm. Um, and so they could go in and they could eat when, when they were hungry. And so they, because they were working for me and we wanted to make sure that they, they were sustained. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and, and so they did. So these kids in 10 days, these four boys got, uh, 178 completed surveys. Wow. Yeah. Of, of, uh, of just kids who are living on the streets around them. And, uh, and then, you know, at the end of it, when I was talking with them and 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 thanking them, and and they just said, one of the kids said to me, "I mean, I'm going to be a researcher too." And I was like, "Yeah, because you already are a researcher." Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and they said, "Well, if you write a book, we want to write the book with you." You know, and so and that sits with me um, because I and I just think about the importance of of not doing research on people. But doing research with them and being able to say, well, this is the information that is needed and I'm open to how we can work together to get that, mm. you know, or how do we devise these these questions together? And so I would love to to figure out how how to to do that on a larger scale. Mm. Um, and I think especially about Philadelphians who, you know, with, with all the amount of research institutions in our city, I think, you know people are frequently researched on, they are very rarely engaged in the process. Mm -hmm. And what would it be for, for Philadelphia to reclaim research and for Philadelphians 
to say, actually, no, I'm, you're not going to do research on me, but um, I can collaborate with you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are there any favorite or life-changing resources that you want to share with listeners? There's a book called Crazy Like Us, mm-hmm. and it's written by, uh, I think his name is Water. Last name is Water. He uh, he's a journalist, and he uh, he went through and he he went to I think six different countries, and he interviewed um, psychiatrists and psychologists who who work and uh, in in their countries, and uh, and and so I read this one, and it was the first time that I had the understanding at, from a psychological standpoint that. Uh, we are colonizing the world through psychology. Hmm. And so that was a huge turning point for me Hmm. um, because it made me stop and step back in my own field and say, oh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, what what do I need to step back from here and and how do I need to be more culturally competent in in the work that I do? Um, And and with that also is, uh, you know, the field or the – the area of liberation psychology, uh, which comes out of Latin America, um, uh, with Martin Barrow, uh, also, uh, just something, an excellent resource to, to read. Um, and, uh, so those would be, I think in the, the psychology, those were the two that, that changed everything for me. Okay. Um, from in in music, I think this is it's subjective, right? It um, so for for me, I <laughs> I mean, I this will just fit with what I told you earlier about being a teenager, right? Um, my it was the song uh, "Zombies" by the Cranberries. <laughs> um, I thought that, you were going to say that, something like seriously academic. No. <laughs> But that is all right. We have all types of different resources. And then the other book that I I'd read uh, was called Poverty and Psychology um, from Global Perspective to Local Practice um, and how we pathologize poverty in this country. Um, and, and many other people do as well. But I, I will speak from the U.S. context because that is my context. Um, so, yeah, those are all books. And then, uh, you know, a friend of mine years ago gave me a book called, uh, listening is an act of love. Hmm. That's a powerful title. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that, that's a great, and it's written by, uh, Dave Isay, I-S-A-Y. Okay. Um, Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your vulnerability and for processing personal and the professional and how all of them kind of merge together. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Real Stories. The resources referenced by today's guest speaker will be included in the episode description. For more information about me, Dr. Megan Corredo, and my work with the story's trauma narrative intervention, please visit my website, www.storiesguide.com. Also, feel free to follow my story social media pages on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Remember that for every story of trauma and adversity, there is always a story of strength and resilience.